0: As Mickey said, it is Father's Day. I'm actually apparently starting a habit of speaking on holidays. I took Memorial Day, I have Father's Day, so what's the next holiday? There we go, so I should probably speak on that weekend too. As you can see, I brought my father on this Father's Day. And actually, my mother wasn't here for Mother's Day, so I did want to say something about both my parents, and I've actually told them this before. One thing about my parents that I appreciate... Uh, especially looking back is that you know I doubted a lot of things growing up, uh, maybe even doubted um, at some point the source uh, of their faith. but one thing about my parents, I never doubted was their faith and i don 't mean to to uh, not embarrass you, but to to talk too much about you i don 't want to belabor the point, but my parents I never did doubt my parents faith, and I really appreciate that looking back. great example. And uh, just, just I, I was blessed. I had some some good parents. And it is Father's Day. Talking about my dad, I had a great dad. Uh, I don't want to go too far into that, too, but I really did. I have a, a wonderful father. And not everybody has that, that uh, relationship with their earthly father. Uh, but we have a heavenly father who is a good father, uh, a great father. And uh, so, uh, as, as we think about Father's Day today, if you don't have a good earthly example, we do have a heavenly father who loves us perfectly, So, praise him for that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this opportunity to gather as a body of believers to study your word. We thank you for that word. And Lord, this morning, as we study the life of Joseph uh, and the end of his life, Lord, we pray that you would just... Open our hearts to hear what you would have us to to hear, Lord. Use me. Speak your words through me, Lord. Thank you for the freedom we have to meet together uh, and do this, Lord. We we just thank you so much for your love, your grace, and your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 48 through 50, that's what what we'll be studying this morning, uh, albeit relatively br- briefly, this, this is the seventh, uh, seventh message on the series of Joseph and the end of, of his life. Uh, and just to sum up the, uh, the chapters, Genesis 48 through 50, the last time I, I spoke on three chapters I read them. I won't be doing that this time. But just to sum up what, what is in these chapters, Jacob blesses and adopts the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, he blesses Joseph. He actually tells them that he has the birthright, that he will receive a double portion. He prophesies about his other sons to the exclusion of his two newly adopted sons, Ephraim uh, and Manasseh. And then he dies. and He's honored by the Egyptians, and he's buried in Israel. Uh, and then uh, we see the, the brothers of Joseph, apparently not believing that Joseph had truly forgiven them. Uh, And so they seek his forgiveness again, and Joseph obviously forgives them. We'll be studying 50 verse 20. And then Joseph dies. And I did want to stress uh, something about the story of Joseph. I think it is an important story, a very important story. Uh, We know that the Word of God is living and powerful, uh, we, we know that from Hebrews 4.12. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Peter one twenty and 21 talk about how Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, how we know that the world, word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, so when you think about Scripture, uh, everything that is recorded is important. But if you look at the book of Genesis, God, through his servant Moses, recorded Thirteen chapters, or devoted thirteen chapters of Genesis, out of fifty, to the story of Joseph. And really, depending on how you define what a chapter, whether a chapter is devoted to somebody or not, the only two people that are in Genesis or spoken of in Genesis that you could say would maybe have more time devoted to them would be Abraham uh, and Jacob. But the story of Joseph has thirteen full chapters devoted to his life. And I think that uh, we can we can take lesson from that. That's why we've devoted seven seven Sunday schools to that. There's thirteen whole chapters devoted to that. But it is a story of God's providence and his, and his ability to keep His promises. A passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse nine, says this: "Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God; not He is a God." Not he is the most powerful God, but he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is faithful. And not only uh, does he keep his promises, but he is able to keep his promises, uh, which I think is important to, to say. Now, chapters 48 through 50... There really is a lot to unpack in this passage of scripture. And I'm gonna, as I said earlier, I'm not going to read it today. So uh, I'm going to leave that to you. Uh, if you've already read it, wonderful. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and read it. And most of it, I'm actually going to have to leave to your study as well. And there's a lot in there when you when you look at what Jacob said about his sons uh, in chapter 49. There's a lot of a lot to unpack there. Um, a lot of prophecy that did that did come true, but I really want to focus my efforts this morning on uh, three individuals who are really front and center in this passage of scripture, and I think integral to Joseph's story. One of which is obviously Joseph. The first one is is Jacob. Jacob, I think, in this passage of scripture, uh, especially when taken in context of his entire life, illustrates God's guidance. Uh, If you look at Jacob, Jacob is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. uh, That's in verse 21. And the stage of his life in which he is mentioned, or the reason that he is mentioned, is is found in this passage of Scripture, chapter 48, when he uh, blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he leans on his staff and worships. And I think the reason that I I would say that, that Jacob... In this passage of scripture illustrates God's guidance that guidance is, I believe always there uh, for his his children, but do we always, are we always listening for it? Are we always looking for it? If you look at Jacob and the life of Jacob, over the course of his life, he wasn't always looking for god's guidance. In fact, he was often relying on his own. Um, he was afraid in many respects or often. Uh, he was running from Laban. you see him running from Laban, you see him running from Esau. Uh, you see some, some strife in his house between his sons, between his wives. And I think in many respects, Jacob was learning. It was taking a long time to learn over the course of his life. But at the end of his life, what we see here in these passages of Scripture, he is listening to the guidance of God. Uh, we see that in chapter 48 when he decides to adopt Ephraim uh, and Manasseh. Those two go on to become uh, part of the sons of, of Israel and part of the tribes of, of Judah, the 12 tribes. Uh, they actually supplanted Reuben... Uh, and and uh, Joseph is not explicitly one of the twelve tribes. It's it's his two sons. And then you also see his determination or, or decision when he's blessing them, and he's he's basically blind at this point uh, to cross over his hands, and he he blessed the younger with his right, which is typically reserved for the older at that point. And again, did that I believe with, at the at the guidance of God, and it established that was the fourth generation. Uh, that had the younger had been blessed over the elder. Uh, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over any of his brothers, and then now Ephraim over Manasseh. But again, Joseph or Jacob was listening to the guidance of God at that point. And then if you go on to chapter 49, uh, the words of prophecy, and they really are prophecy, about the sons of Jacob. Joseph didn't come up, or excuse me, Jacob didn't come up with that. There's a lot of Jays in this passage of scripture. So I apologize if I mix the names up. But Jacob uh, did not come up with these by himself. Uh, He really was, I believe, at this point in his life, really listening to God's guidance uh, and understanding it. And and so you see uh, some prophecy about his sons here. He really was. He was uh, worshiping the Lord at this point in his life and listening for God's guidance. And again, I think the lesson we can take away from is that it is there if we seek it and if we are listening to it. And at this point in his life, Jacob was. The second person that I'd like to talk about is Judah. And I think Judah illustrates God's grace. You see, chapter 49, verse 9, when, when uh, and really it's, it's verse 10, when Jacob is talking about Judah, who is the fourthborn son. Uh, he said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And if you look at uh, one Chronicles five two, it actually talks about Joseph got the birthright, but from the line of Ju- Judah, the line, uh, kings kings came from him. Um, and if you really look. Forward, and we have the entirety of Scripture that we, we can do this. Um, Micah 5 2 talks about where the Messiah would come from, Bethlehem, uh, which was a small portion of Judah. And if you look at in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, one of the things that Jesus is called or referred to in Revelation chapter 5 is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I think you see the grace of God illustrated not just in Judah's life, and he, it is, and is. We've talked about that, I believe. in in several of these messages that Judah has changed. You look at when we find Judah at the beginning of of the story of Joseph, he is the one who decided, or came up with the idea, I should say, to sell his his brother. Well, let's sell him. Let's make some money off of this. And then his blood won't be on our hands. And then we we, we didn't study the passage of Scripture that talked about uh, Judah and Tamar, but you look at uh, Judah, and you could say that um, he struggled as a father. His firstborn was, was struck down for being evil. His secondborn was also struck down for being evil. Uh, and then, and then uh, he had a child with his, with his daughter-in-law, inadvertently. And when you look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, which I've heard called the genealogy of grace, who do you find in the genealogy of Christ? Judah's child from Tamar. Perez, I believe it was, if I recall correctly. And you also see several other people that you wouldn't expect to see in the genealogy of Christ. You see uh, Ruth, a Moabitess. you see Rahab, a prostitute. Uh, you see the, the child of, of well, you see Solomon, the child of David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba not being named, but she, that, that, is, that is in there. The progeny of that union is in there. Uh, and I think so the, the grace of God is illustrated uh, in Judah's life personally because he did change. And we see that on chapter 44, when he became surety for Benjamin. Uh, we see it just a change in him. That is not mentioned about his, his brother Reuben, his brother Simeon and Levi, uh, who were really, if you look at chapter 49, not spoken of highly. Um, but you do see that in the life of Judah. And then, it, again, the grace of God is illustrated in his progeny. The line was continued through Judah, uh, who was not someone that we would expect or pick. I think if we had picked who the line of Christ would come from, it wouldn't have been Judah. It would have been Joseph. But God's grace... Uh, is such, are shown that way, I believe, in, in, in picking somebody that we don't necessarily or would not uh, pick in this instance. And then Joseph. I think Joseph illustrates God's goodness, and I don't think that's something that, I think that's something we've studied over the course of his entire life. Uh, God was good to Joseph. Um, and I think it's, it's important to look at some of the characteristics of Joseph in, in, in context with that. You now, God's grace is completely undeserved. And his goodness is in many respects, too. But there are certain things that God demands of his servants that I think Joseph illustrated, uh, not illustrated, but exhibited characteristics. One was faithfulness. Not that Joseph was perfectly faithful, but the Bible never really talks about unfaithfulness uh, for Joseph. I'd imagine that there were maybe moments in his life and the difficulties of life that he may have doubted, uh, that he may have... Uh, had difficulty being faithful, but the Bible does not mention in the passages of Scripture whether he was actually unfaithful. I think he was uh, throughout the the difficult times and the good times. When he was given a lot of responsibility as a governor of Egypt, he was faithful in that. When he was a prisoner, he was faithful. When he was uh, the servant, the number two guy in in the house of Potiphar, he was faithful. And God rewards faithfulness. He looks and desires for it, but he rewards it as well. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the faithful are promised a crown of life. And I think it's important to mention, too, that that reward isn't always something that we may look for, or we may desire. It may not be an earthly reward. Sometimes we may be rewarded uh, physically as well, but we're ultimately going to be promised, or we're promised that crown of life if we are faithful. Joseph was also humble. And I don't think that there's a passage in the the entire story of Joseph that sums that up better than Genesis chapter forty-one, verse sixteen. And just to give you the context of that, this has been mentioned several times throughout this this series. Um, To give you the context, Joseph was brought out of prison before Pharaoh, who was the number two guy, or the number one guy, excuse me. Joseph was the number two ultimately. The number one guy in, in Egypt, often elevated to the status of a deity, had the power of life over death. Probably pretty easy to be a little overawed. Uh, And Pharaoh, and I'm paraphrasing, but said, I hear you can interpret dreams. What does Joseph say in verse 16? Let's read it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. He could have taken credit for a gift God gave him, but he didn't. He showed humility, I believe, in in this passage here. And God rewards humility. James 4, 6, which is really taken from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, we're called to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift us up. Humility is something that God desires, looks for, and rewards. And it's practical in, in I believe, the world as well. Pride, Pride was the first sin. Lucifer exhibited pride tried to elevate him to the same status as God. God looks for humility and rewards it. And the last person, this isn't one of the three that's explicitly mentioned in this passage of Scripture, but I believe there are many, many parallels to him uh, in, in this story of Joseph as Jesus Christ himself, especially in taking with context with these two characteristics that Joseph exhibits, faithfulness and humility. I looked up the definition of faithful or faithfulness, and I really liked One of them, which is this, an unswerving adherence to a person or uh, an idea or a thing. Faithfulness is, there is no left or right. It is a literal laser focus. And I think the only person that that can really truly be ascribed to is is Jesus Christ himself, is God. Uh, We are not that way. Even when you talk about Joseph's faithfulness, that is not to say that Joseph never lost sight of. There was, there was probably some swerving. But Jesus Christ is faithful to us. He's faithful to, he was faithful to his father's um, plan, the plan of salvation. He's faithful to us. And uh, we can praise him for that. But there is no one that is truly faithful except for Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is also humble. He displayed humility in his life here as a, as a as a man, and I think we all probably know the passage of scripture that really talks about that, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse five, and the title of this section is The Humbled, Humbled and Exalted Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And I think that's the first part of his humility that God took on flesh. That, that's incredible when we really consider that. But he took it further. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The Lord Jesus was humble, more humble than any man ever lived. And, and, and I think that we really can't there's no excuse if, if the Lord Jesus was humble that we should try and be prideful because if there was any, any man that ever lived, and Jesus was fully man, that had a right to be proud, it was Jesus Christ, and he showed humility. That's something I believe we are called to, uh, and it's something that is rewarded. God, God did reward the humility of Christ. You see that in 9 through 11 where he exalted Christ above every name. Then we get to Genesis chapter 50. We've talked about Jacob, Judah, and Joseph. We're going to continue talking about Joseph. Genesis chapter 50, and we'll actually start in verse 15 for context. Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, Please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. They recognized that. They recognized that what they did was wrong. Now please forgive the the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They didn't believe that he had truly forgiven him, forgiven them, uh, at this point in their life. Which they realized again that, that they had actually sinned against their brother. Uh, they believe they, they realized how gravely they had sinned against their brother. Uh, and, and the Bible doesn't say that they lied, but I think we can probably contextually say that they may have made up the part where Jacob said, "Forgive us, forgive your brothers, don't kill them." Uh, so they were afraid that, that that forgiveness wasn't real, wasn't true. And look at Joseph's response to that. You know, he had forgiven them. That hurt him. He wept when he realized that his brothers had not really accepted that forgiveness. They were still afraid uh, of retribution. Then his brothers, this is verse 18, "...then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, "'Behold, we are your servants.'" Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. He reassures them, for am I in the place of God? I think that's interesting there. He doesn't he realizes that it's not his place to seek retribution. That's God's responsibility. He's not excusing their behavior here. I think he recognizes that they, they had sinned. And you go to verse 20, he says, But as for you, you meant evil against me. There it is, very bluntly. You meant evil against me. There's no excuse there. But God meant it for good in order to bring about it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I think that that passage right there is probably the crux of the entire story of Joseph or it really sums it up very nicely. That people meant evil, but God Meant it for good. If you look at the story, his brothers did mean evil against him. They meant to kill him, originally. And then Reuben convinced them not to. So they threw him in a pit, still probably attempting to leave him there to die. And then they decided to sell him into slavery because some slavers came along. So they made a little money off of him. And where did they send him? They didn't care. They didn't care at all. And selling him to slavery, in many respects, slavery was a fate worse than death because he had to live as a slave. They then lied to their father to cover their sin. They murdered him in their hearts without cause. You know, Jesus, when he elaborated on murder, he said, if any man hates his brother without cause, he's already murdered him in, their, in, their, in his heart. And they hated their brother without cause. You know, one thing about Joseph. Joseph never asked to be in the position that he was in. He never asked to be his dad's favorite. But he was. And if anybody, if they should have been, if the brothers of Joseph should have been mad at anybody, or were going to be mad at anybody, they should have been mad at Jacob. That anger should have been directed against him. Instead, they directed it against the object of their father's affection. And again, he did not ask to be in that position. They hated their brother without cause. And Joseph said that, again, very bluntly. You meant evil against me. I didn't deserve it. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. God ultimately used the actions of Joseph's brothers to fulfill prophecy and enact his will. And he cared for Joseph every step of the way. His providence was evident throughout his life. He even used Joseph to bless Jacob's sons, the perpetrators of the evil against him. Their families were alive at this point in the story because of Joseph, because of the evil that they perpetrated against him, but because God had used that for good. And again, I think this verse perfectly sums up the entire story of Joseph illustrating the providential hand of God throughout his life. I think it's interesting, too, that Joseph, at any point in the story, probably couldn't see that. If you picked any point in the story that we've gone so far, he couldn't necessarily see the providential hand of God. When he was in prison, I doubt he could. Uh, When he was a slave in the slaver's caravan, I doubt he probably went, you know, God's guiding me. He's, He's providentially caring for me right now. But looking back at this point in the story when he said this, He could see the providential hand of God throughout his entire life, taking care of him and bringing him to this single point in his life where, again, God was fulfilling his will. And he couldn't even see the full fulfillment of that will at this point, could he? We do, because we have the the entire story. God made the Israelite nation a great nation in Egypt because they were in such a position that they could prosper. Uh, Again, we've mentioned before, but they started out with 70 people Uh, when they moved to Egypt, and they they left Egypt during the Exodus as a great nation. And ultimately, God did bring them to the promised land. But, But Joseph, I think, even at this point in his life, couldn't see the full providence of God and the full will that God was enacting through just his life. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I think that you see the story of Jesus in that statement as well. If you look at Acts, Acts chapter 3, this is during Peter's message. When he's preaching to the crowd, Acts chapter 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up, And denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And killed the Prince of Life. You meant evil against the Prince of Life. But God meant it for good. Whom God raised up from the dead of which we are witnesses. And Peter, when Peter and John were arrested, he was before the Sadducees in chapter four. He said, This, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man stands before you, or here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You meant evil against Jesus Christ. That's what what Peter was saying here. Um, Humanity meant evil against the Prince of Life, but God meant it for good. And he enacted his will through the the sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ on the cross. I think this verse also applies uh, to today, Christians today if you if you say "you" in the place of you, you, mean, you say the world uh, the world, and I think we can all agree the world is evil, evil being defined as the absence of good or the absence of God. Uh, James Four four states it pretty explicitly that friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot be friends with both. There is no bridging that gap. They are at odds with each other. One thing that I think is interesting to note, sin, sin itself doesn't get worse with time. It doesn't it, it, the, there's nothing uh, the, the writer of the writer of Ecclesiastes Solomon said this, "There's nothing new under the sun. I don't think that sin gets worse. There's nothing new that's invented that's, that's new sin. In fact, if you look at way, way back in Genesis chapter six, verse five, this is the way that, that the people of the day were described. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the description of the people back, way back in Genesis before the flood, when God destroyed the world. So what I mean by that is it's not like sin is, there's nothing new. There's no, there's no new sin. It does, it's not gotten worse, but I do think that, that it expands with population, because there's more people to, to sin, and, and mankind is sinful. And I think that it is more readily available because of technology. You look at the advent of radio or television or the Internet, social media, it is very evident. Sin of man is very evident. Uh, I don't think you can get on the Internet right now in the month of June, and I hate the fact that June was appropriated this way because it's my birthday month. But what is June to most people in the secular world now in the United States? It's Pride Month. And you cannot go anywhere. My wife has mentioned it several times. All the advertisements. Everybody's jockeying for position to say, Hey, we support sin. And reality is what it is. Um, but it is Pride Month. And, and so again, it, it's not that it gets worse, but it is definitely more evident, more in your face uh, today. And I think realizing that our adversary is truly is the devil himself. First uh, Peter chapter 5 says that, our adversary is the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who made me to devour. And Ephesians chapter 6 talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the world means evil against us. John chapter 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, you know, we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But he went on after that, in chapter uh, 3, verse 19, to say this, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. When you hate something, generally speaking, you're pretty much against it. And the world does mean evil, I believe, against us. I mean, we're promised. We're promised tribulation. John 16, in this world you will have trouble. 2 Timothy uh, 3, 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We're promised it. We are promised it. Before we get into the second part of 50, uh, verse 20, I do want to, us to turn, if you could turn with me, to Romans chapter 12. Starting verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You meant evil against me. In the context of the world today, uh, really, let's. if we go back to the story we've been studying, the story of Joseph, that this is really how Joseph reacted to the evil of his brothers. He didn't repay evil for evil. He didn't... He didn't uh, avenge himself or seek revenge on his brothers. He repaid evil with good. and uh, trusted in the Lord to balance the scales. That's why I stress verse 19. He said, am I God? It's not my responsibility to judge your sin. That's God's responsibility. Vengeance is his. Right, so we do have a responsibility uh, when, when faced with evil. And, and if you want to look at the ultimate reaction, look at the story of Jesus. Jesus was unjustly accused unjustly sentenced to death, and at any point in that entire process, he could have divinely showed that he was in fact who he said he was, and everybody would have known it he could have done that he could have obliterated everybody that was that was spitting on him, that was whipping him, that was giving him a crown of thorns, that was crucifying. He could have done anything. He could have come down off the cross when they taunted him to do so. There were a myriad of things he did, and yet he remained faithful to the will of God God the Father, ultimately establishing the plan of salvation, which we are benefiting from today. He repaid evil with good. God repaid evil with good. And the second part of that God meant it for good. I think there's a lot to unpack in this statement, especially in, in, in relation to today. I think, I think that statement right there illustrates the attributes of God his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his om, um, uh, omnipotence. That he knows all, that he sees all, and that he can do all. You know, I, th- I think especially when you talk about the omnipotence uh, of, of the Lord Jesus and, and of God. Sin is really ineffective against the power of God. I think sometimes when we're in the trenches, or you're in a in a tough time, we may we tend to forget that God is completely in control at all times, uh, and completely has power over uh, sin, has power over the devil, has power over our adversary. You know, when he talked about the establishment of a church, his church. Uh, In Matthew chapter 16, when he was talking to Peter, he said, On this rock I will build my church. And the statement that follows that is, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's no power. Romans chapter 8, it's a great passage of Scripture. Verses 31 through 39. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all... These things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, and I love verses thirty eight and thirty nine for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God meant it for good, and I think again this this really illustrates his attributes in that portion. I think it also illustrates his attitude. His attitude towards sin, which it will end up being punished ultimately, but that uh, his attitude towards the saints, especially in this passage. The world means evil against the church, the bride of Christ, but God means it for good. He, his attitude towards the saints is that he wants to give goodness, to be good to them. And it also, I think, illustrates uh, his actions, just a couple passages of Scripture. We've actually mentioned Romans eight twenty eight For we know that all, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Most people know Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. Romans chapter 40, verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength shall mount up with wings as eagles. They, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. All of these things God is talking about, he means good. He works all things for the good of those who love him. And again, going back and hitting on a point again, sin is powerless against that. God will enact his will, often using the actions of sinful men, and not in the, not in the manner or a way, uh, like if we consider uh, Roman or Greek or Norse mythology, where the, where the gods are reacting, in many respects, to man. And they're, they're inserting themselves at one point in history and hoping to get an action. That's not how God operates. God is completely and utterly in control and will enact his will and wants us to share in that. And we see that. I think we see that throughout history, too, not just in the Bible. Now God used the persecution of the church. We see that actually in the Bible uh, to spread his church. He used the evil of man to spread his church. When they when they tried to stamp out Christianity, it just exploded. Exploded out of Jerusalem into Asia Minor, into the Roman Empire, into East Asia, and throughout the world. And again, we are benefiters of that. That persecution caused the church to spread. He used the pagan empire, the Roman Empire, to preserve his word. You know, Catholic priests were really one of the only reasons that the word of God, God could use anything, obviously. But he chose to use... The Catholic Church, which was established because of the Roman Roman uh, Empire, to preserve His Word. Catholic priests faithfully copied the Bible over and over and over again. This is a time when I would say probably ninety nine percent of the world, entire world population couldn't read, and he, preser- he used he used a, a, a organization that man created to preserve His Word. And again, we are beneficiaries of that today. God can use evil. And he does use evil for good, and he means it for good. The last portion of this passage in Genesis chapter 50, the death of Joseph, ends with Joseph's faith. Again, if you look at anybody that's mentioned in the faith, chapter Hebrews, chapter 11, and then 22, I believe, is where Joseph is mentioned. This is where his faith is mentioned, is this passage of scripture right here. He had faith that God would enact his will. I think I'm being told that I need to <laughs> I need to stop. This is what Joseph said. Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He didn't see it at this point in his life, but he had faith that God would bring Israel to the land of promise. And that happened 400 years later where he, he asked them to bring his body back to the promised land. And they did. And we, If you look at the story of Exodus, they did bring the bones of Joseph with them. But the story of Joseph ends with his faith in the plan of God that it would be worked, uh, even, in, even in difficulty, even in trial. I think it's good to remember that God does work his will even in even in strife, even in difficulty, he works for good. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to study it, to open it, to be reminded of great truths. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your goodness in difficulty and strife. We thank you that you are in control and that your will will be enacted. We thank you for your son, for his death on the cross and his ultimate resurrection. Lord, we thank you so much that we serve a risen Savior today who loves us, who cares for us, who is faithful to us. We pray that uh, you would just bless us as we continue. to open your word this morning and remember the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. We all these things in your precious and only name, Jesus Christ. Amen.